I first heard about the 80-20 concept when I was in college. A business professor introduced our class to what was called the Pareto Principle. In the 19th century, a man named Pareto, he created a math model which explained income distribution in Italy. 80% of the land was owned by 20% of the people. Several decades later, Joseph Juron, a German engineer in the 1930s, he built on Pareto's work. Uh, now, maybe just a footnote here, Pareto never named his theory on land distribution after himself, but we do know that he probably originated the concept because Juron references the theory and attaches it to Pareto's name in his book, Quality Control Handbook. He credits Pareto for that 80-20 observation. So Juron took Pareto's observation farther, and he said that the same theory Pareto used to describe land ownership and subsequently wealth distribution, it could be applied to management salaries as well as most other issues in factories. He studied industrial processes, noting what he referred to as, here's, here's kind of his quote, the vital few and the trivial many. And I've got a graphic in the show notes where you can see what that looks like. The truth is just about every area of life has this concept working. There are a few things that generate the greatest results and there are there are equally a few things that cause the most headaches. So he said, this is Gerard Amparito, that some things matter more than other things. All efforts aren't created equal. So again, the argument is that 20% of your efforts generate 80% of your results, 80% of your efforts generate 20% of your results. Now, let me provide you with an example of the trivial many and the vital few in action, and we'll talk about how this thing works. A few years ago, I read Tim Ferriss's book, The Four-Hour Workweek. Now, Tim works more than four hours. That's not his point. His point is that we can eliminate the fluff. Those are the extra tasks that create negative energy, or they benefit our lives only incrementally, and we can do that so that we can focus on the things that matter the most. In other words, focus on that 20% that generates the majority of the results, and then forget about the 80% that generates the minority. Now, in the book, he writes about his experience of feeling overworked in a printing business he owned. If you ran into him in a coffee shop those days, he would have had the customary answer to the how are you doing question that we often ask people. The answer, busy. I'm too busy. So he took action, immediate action. He reviewed his portfolio and he noticed that he had 120 active clients in his business. He analyzed each of them, simply looking at the data for information and the underlying patterns. He noticed the following trends from 120 clients. Five customers, just five, were responsible for 95% of his revenue, but 98% of his time was spent chasing the other 115 clients. He also noticed that two clients were causing most of his anxiety and most of his customer service issues, and they were not two of the five that were generating that 98% or that 95% of his revenue. So he refers to this in the book as his extreme Pareto moment. Something had to give. Well, I've told you before about a summer that I worked uh, as an intern 
and traveled throughout the state of Alabama teaching really some of the material that I've taught on on this podcast series, uh, taught it in different churches. The strange thing is I heard similar sets over and over across several contexts, but, but I didn't hear them in relationship to economic distribution, to manufacturing processes, or even to client bases. I heard them in relationship to how invested church members were in their local congregation. 20% of the people do 80% of the work around here, one pastor told me. And then another, 80% of the people don't do anything, even another. The vast majority of the money that funds our budget, it's given by about 20% of the people. Then another one, well, yeah, it seems like most of the people who come don't give or participate in any way whatsoever. I remember one time actually even trying to say something like, well, well, maybe they're rich. Like maybe you've got one wealthy person and that's throwing your numbers off. And a pastor actually told me, no, only 20% of the people actually give anything at all. Now, I saw several thriving churches, incredible places where it looked like obviously more people were contributing in terms of both their time and their treasure, Turns out, even there I was wrong. Even in those places, the numbers were eerily the same. 20% of the people did 80% of the heavy lifting. All that said, if you're in a church context, we want more workers. But we want workers who serve from their right place, workers who serve as an overflow of their identity, rather than an attempt to create one. And that's why, really, when I began the series, we started talking for the first five episodes about identity. Identity is foundational. For, for instance, look here. Uh, Paul had some serious worker credentials. He recounts them in 2 Corinthians 11, 21 through 29. Let me, let me read the passage. He says, Whatever else anyone dares to boast of, I'm speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Night and a day I was adrift on sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people. Danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and in hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And then apart from these things, there's the daily pressure of me on my anxiety for all of the churches. Who who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? Paul provides us with additional qualifications in Philippians 3, 4 through 7. I also might have confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Concerning the law, a Pharisee. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless, But what things were gained to me, these I have counted as loss for Christ. Now, notice all the working that Paul had 
but he doesn't rest on those credentials. He places nothing on his ability to work. Paul concludes that he counts all these things as loss in order that, here's here's a quotation from Philippians 3.10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Now, this mirrors what Jesus said in the upper room, that eternal life isn't just about existing beyond our physical death. It's more relational than that. Jesus specified, this is eternal life, John 17, 3, that they may know you. So that said, workers in the church need to be encouraged to work, but as an overflow of knowing Jesus. Well, let me give you a subset of workers Let me talk about the women. Now, it's easy to look at the workers uh, and say something like, yeah, yeah, we don't just want people working. Um, In fact, you might even be thinking right now about the story of Mary and Martha. Uh, And that's really what got me thinking here about the workers and not working as just duty, working as overflow, as a drive of passion. But, but as I started exploring this, it really reminded me of something else. You, you might remember their tell. The sisters were two of the closest friends of Jesus. One day he visited their home, and here's how Luke records it in Luke 10, 38 through 42. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you're anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Now, I've heard this story preached dozens of times. The inference is always that Mary did a great job and Martha completely missed it. But let me show you a few things. They're completely related to where we've been in this talk, as well as where I want to go in the next talk. This is going to kind of tie several together. First of all, notice Luke 10.38, for those of you who are listening with the open Bible, it's Martha's house. Don't miss the significance of that. Sure, Martha could have paid more attention to Jesus, but go ahead and cut her a little slack here. The reality is that someone must fund the ministry that we do. Someone has to organize it. Someone has to provide a place for the magic to happen. The Lord honors, and I believe that he calls people to do that. In fact, if you read through the gifts that we've discussed and studied, giving is on the list. Second, Martha does have a moment in this episode for sure, uh, but she exhibits an astronomically high faith quotient also. So, so yes, she asked Jesus to correct Mary. That's in Luke 10.40. But later in the story, we find that when their brother Lazarus dies, Martha is actually the one who confesses that Jesus could have stopped Lazarus from dying and that he can still resurrect him in that moment. You can look that up in John 11.21 and following. It makes you wonder if Martha's faith was responsible for that miracle in the same way that the great faith of the centurion was responsible for his servant's healing in Matthew 8, 5 through 13. And in the same way that the friend's faith was responsible for the paralytic being healed, who was lowered through the roof in Mark 2, 5. Now, all that said, that there is something powerful we learn from Mary 
right as she was sitting at Jesus' feet. So Luke 10, 39. Now, don't interpret this at all to mean Martha ran around, but Mary sat down and paid attention. Martha scurried into the kitchen, but Mary just sat there. No, no, that's too simplistic. Luke is showing us something far more powerful in this passage. Okay, to sit, that, that phrase, to sit at a rabbi's feet meant that you were accepted by them as a student. So we read in Acts 22.3 that Paul was educated at the feet, he sat at the feet of Gamaliel, a well-known, well-respected historical rabbi. Uh, it was a famous, and he exhorted the Jewish tribunal not to sentence the apostles to death in Acts 5.34. In other words, Luke communicates this to us in this passage that Mary was accepted by Jesus as a student in whom he could invest his time and focus his teaching. And back then, recall, students didn't choose their rabbi like we choose and apply to a school. It was the other way around. Rabbis chose students, which is exactly how Jesus chose the 12 disciples. He went and selected them by name. So Martha is the one who rushed to greet Jesus when he came to visit after Lazarus' death. Mary remained in the house. When Martha stepped up and stepped inside to let Mary know that Jesus has arrived, uh, she said, Martha said, the teacher is here and calling for you. Now, that's very subtle, but whereas most people called him master or lord, obviously both of these two had a unique student-rabbi-rabbi-student relationship. In other words, it seems that both of them were spiritual powerhouses with probably two different created designs. Think back, if, if you just mentally, think back to the birthday cake example and how in any given scenario, because of the way we're wired and created, we're going to respond in different ways. But both of these women, both of these were, they, they were accepted as, as disciples, I believe. In, in fact, catch this. John also, he goes out of his way to let us know in the shortest verse in the Bible that Jesus wept. That's in John eleven thirty five. 35. And in that culture, weeping was considered to be women's work. Learning would have typically been men's work. So what's just happened is this script has gotten topsy-turvied in the New Testament. Uh, Paul, he flipped that cultural script too. He embraced women as co-laborers with them. If you read Romans 6, 3, uh, 16, 3 through 4, uh, he acknowledged some women as apostles and deacons. Uh, for instance, you see the name Phoebe in Romans 16, 1 and 2. As well, there's an episode where Paul mentions Priscilla's name before her husband Aquila. In four of the six times they were mentioned, he does that actually, denoting her importance. In the ancient world, the order in which you reference names often marked who contributed the most or held the lead position on a project. So you could see this example in Acts 18.36. And, you know, you look at the order that the disciples are mentioned. It's always Peter, James, and John, and then the rest. Peter became the lead apostle the one who led out at, at Pentecost. So this, this naming is important. And so when Paul and Luke, who's writing Acts, intentionally start inserting names in different ways and even mentioning names, there's obviously so much more going on. Uh, there's an indisputable reality uh, in Acts 18.36, uh, which is the episode where uh, Priscilla and Aquila 
uh, taught the way of God more accurately, specifically concerning the things of Jesus, that a woman taught Apollos and that she was the leader there. Uh, now, some people do refer to Paul's admonition in 1 Timothy 2.11 that a woman should learn in quietness and full submission as proof that women should be silenced. But that's a stretch. First of all, everyone, even men, were encouraged to learn in quietness and submission. Students deferred to their rabbi, period. In fact, uh, you might remember in Talk 12, we learned that it's God's will that we all submit. The second thing I would notice here is that everyone who read that letter that Paul writes and mentions that a woman should learn in quietness and full submission, they would have had a different emphasis. Like They would not have been emphasizing quietness and submission because, again, that was a given. Paul declared here that women should learn. And that's what would stand out because the expectation would be that Paul would remind Timothy that men should learn in quietness and full submission. And here, he's just included other people, half of the people who would have been overlooked, the women, into this. Why did he do that? Well, because they too were called to be disciples of Jesus. They were empowered to serve in leadership and in every other area of the church. Throughout 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, which is the longest exposition on the spiritual gifts, Paul assumes, assumes repeatedly. So not just one mention that you could say, well, that was a fluke. It's, I mean, this is repeatedly, and translators all throughout history have translated this and inserted this, so it's not been erased. We've, we've just read it culturally through different lens. Paul assumes repeatedly that women will prophesy and that they will participate in the full expression of the body of Christ. You will read through the Gospels. It was women who actually funded the ministry of Jesus. That's Luke 8, 1 through 3. Uh, women stood with him at the cross as the men fled for their lives. That's John 19, 25. And the women were the ones who discovered the empty tomb, Mark 16, 1. Here, here's my point. A lot of times when we discuss workers, we automatically look at the men. We think we need more men. And honestly, we do, but we need more women too. For years, the church has squashed the gifts and calling of women in ways the scripture doesn't actually do. Are men and women different? Yes, admittedly. And if you don't admit that men and women are different, you're just not being honest with the facts. Do we have different roles? Absolutely. Are those roles as tidy and rigid as we've made them? Probably not. Now, let me give you an example, just to kind of help you remember this. I, I fly in an airplane a lot, several times a year. I walk the jetway that carries me over the tarmac, and I board a jet. The planes are all different. Some have new seats. Some have television monitors for each seat. Some have USB ports to charge your phones. I've been on a few that have full-blown electrical outlets for laptops as well as full-service Wi-Fi. I've flown first class, business class, and coach. I am always happy when I see more amenities, but I never jump off the plane if I don't see them. Now, all that said, I will tell you one thing that would cause me to remove myself from the plane. Here it is. If I board a jet and I discover only one wing, so I'm walking down kind of the aisle and I'm looking out the right, looking at the left, checking the numbers on the seats to see exactly where I'm going to plop down for the next few hours. If I look out that window and I discover that there's only one wing, 
I'm off. No questions asked. I know, that one sounds obvious, doesn't it? You'd probably jump off too. You see, you and I, we both know that regardless of how incredible a plane looks, regardless of how skilled our pilot might be, regardless of what amenities are on that plane, no matter how good the coffee is or how many in-flight movies they have or how strong the Wi-Fi signal is, if the plane only has one wing, it's not going anywhere. It's nonsensical to think that even an airline company might toss a plane out there for flight with just one wing. But make a small leap with me. In the early church, all throughout the scripture, we see we have men and women. That is, we have a man wing and we have a woman wing. The wings are different. Uh, In fact, a lot of ink has been spilled about how different those wings are or aren't, depending on where you land theologically. And my purpose isn't to answer all those questions as to the precise role of which group should do what in the church. That's up for you to decide using the Scripture and the Holy Spirit and others in the body of Christ as your guide. My purpose is to say, though, that, hey, you need to really figure out how to make the most of both wings. There are a lot of gifted and highly skilled daughters of the king who could really use some help carrying forth their mission. Like they have purpose, they have calling, they have destiny. They should be encouraged, equipped, and empowered to do so. And it's not just to play second fiddle to the men. So just numerically, like if I'm talking to church leaders here, you can grow that 20% of workers by inviting the 50% of the women who are in your church to join those ranks, and then by encouraging them to do so in the full boldness and beauty of who they're designed to be. See, it's tempting to focus on just that 20%, but you can't. you got to include the ladies as well. All right, so talked about 20% of the workers. Let me give you another group that's in the church. Uh, That summer, I traveled throughout the state. I asked pastors... Uh, how many people show up and don't do anything at all? And here's, here's what they said repeatedly. Well, half of the people in the church role hardly show at all, they said. And, and I would say this is true. No matter, you find the largest, biggest, booming, thriving church, even in my hometown of Birmingham, half the people who claim that church is church home They just don't show up. That's why the numbers explode around certain holidays and certain times. Um, So I I did the math quickly in my head when they said half of them don't show up. That means, okay, mathematically, if 20% work and 50% never come, that leaves 30% who do come. So I just asked the pastor, so you're you're telling me that 30% of the people in your church, they just show up and watch everything play out. And I was told over and over, that sounds about right. Now, I, I know my, my numbers are not scientific. I didn't do the work that Perito and Juron did. I just visited about 100 churches, asked a few questions, and started writing down because I was doing a school assignment that summer. I just wrote down what I heard. Uh, one pastor quipped, the FBI couldn't find the other 50%. So I, I wrote down, you know, and the numbers seemed remarkably similar everywhere I went. 20% of the people work. watch. Now, here's here's what I think. I think some people watch because they don't know they're gifted. 
or they think their contribution doesn't matter. In the same way Peter needed someone to call forth his destiny, talked about that in talk number two and three of this entire series, many people who are watching, they need to be reminded that the gifts and calling of the Spirit are for everyone. In other words, they need to be reminded of truths like 1 Corinthians 12, 7, and 11, to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one, including them, just as he wills. Or Romans 12, 5 and 6, we, though many, are one body in Christ, individually we're members of one another, having then gifts that differ. So each one of us has a gift, it's different, let us use them. Ephesians 4, 7, grace was given to each one of us. 1 Peter 4, 10, each one has received a gift. I think sometimes people exclude themselves from something that the scripture adamantly includes them in. As well, I I think many watchers need to be shown that spiritual gifts, they're not always sensational. They're not always center stage. They're supernatural, but they're not always flashy. In the same way that some parts of the human bodies are rarely shown to other people or are only revealed in the most sacred places, Paul says the most honored and revered gifts may never be seen. That's in 1 Corinthians 12, 23 through 24. Uh, Let me give you an example Jesus' first miracle at the wedding of Cana of Galilee, it, it occurred while he was there visiting and the new couple ran out of wine. And that would have been easy to do because weddings in that culture could be multiple days affairs. But it was a problem and that party needed to continue, especially when marriage is the metaphor that Christ chose really to denote his relationship to his church, which is what Ephesians 5 and Revelation 21 says. So Mary, Jesus' mother, sought his help, John 2, 2. He informed her that it wasn't yet time to reveal himself, but she persisted. She told the servants to do whatever he asked, effectively ignoring his suggestion that he wait and reveal himself later. And then she stepped out of the way. Well, when the servants looked to Jesus for direction, he asked them to fill six large water pots with water. These would have had 20 to 30 gallons each. And then he said, take a sample to the master of the feast. The master of the feast would be the caterer. They did, and then they were told that this was the best wine of the entire celebration, according to John 2.10. Now, customarily, most people served the best wine first, bringing the lesser quality drinks out when people were too tipsy to tell the difference. The caterer assumed the groom intentionally broke convention and held the good wine until the end. Now, this shows us that not even the man running the feast and organizing the flow of food, it shows us he didn't even know where the wine really originated. In fact, only a few people knew. Mary knew as she sat the entire miracle into motion with her bold request and then graciously pushed her son into the corner, John 2, 3. A handful of servants knew. They're the ones that drew the water and they took the wine to the caterer, John 2, 9. The disciples knew uh, this provided them with a unique glimpse into Jesus' power and his humility, John 2.11. But no one else had any idea, probably not even the groom. He wouldn't have even have been thinking about it in that moment. That's why he hired the caterer in the first place. The gift blessed everyone, though. Now, get that. People were oblivious 
to the fact that a miracle had even happened, yet they were able to enjoy the fruit of it. And that's how many of the gifts operate. People see the effects of them, that is, they see the fruit, but they might not see the work which generates it. Or that gift, it might be used to enhance someone else's gift. Rather than drawing attention to the gifted person, it exponentially increases the capacity of another person. Back when I was in college, I wrote and performed a play with two other guys my age. Uh, We did this on stage at at our church where my dad was the pastor. We we never even thought about using lights, background music, or even sound effects. I wrote the script to allow for a simple stage. Two men in our church, Roger and Art, felt I should give it a second thought. Roger was a tech genius who could run any kind of light system or manage any kind of soundboard, and Art was a studio-caliber musician. The two of them sat in our final dress rehearsal. Final one. Didn't even see the play before that. They asked if they could take some creative license to assist, and then, with permission, they ran with it. Since I trusted each of them, I was happy to let them take artistic control of both of those domains. The the result was this. Michael and Philip, my two partners on that project, were fantastic. They were fabulous. At the same time, Everyone that was there, they hardly noticed Roger and Art, which is the way Roger and Art both wanted it, because their gifts enhanced and served to amplify ours, and everyone thought the entire play was fantastic. They thought we did an amazing job. And why did everyone think that the guys on stage, my my friends Michael and Philip, even me, why, why did they think we were great? Well, it's because Roger and Art made us look that way. They made awkward transitions entertaining. They highlighted the right things on stage. They hid the unnecessary movements that might have been distracting where we're changing out sets and those sorts of things. We looked better because of what they did. They they were the hidden parts that Paul writes about, the parts that deserve greater honor and esteem, according to 1 Corinthians 12, 23, and 24. Now, all of that to say this. Watchers in the church might remain sidelined because they don't see that some of the most powerful ministry happens behind the scenes. Well, there are a few other reasons that people might watch also, that 30%. First, some people watch because life takes them there. New babies, moves, aging parents, illness, issues with children, drops, transitions, Those are just a few of the things that might necessitate stepping back from ministry and then leaning into the stuff of life, at least for a season. I've been there. During one season, our family faced the biggest crisis we'd experienced to date. My solution was to cease all extra activities, including sports, small groups, and volunteer service, and then rally together as a family during those moments. We still attended church on Sundays, but that's all we did. If you looked at us during that season, you would have thought they're just watching. Sometimes that's exactly what you need to do. Ministry can wait. Second, some people watch because they just drift there. A necessary break, like the one I took, it might have taken them out of service, but they eventually find themselves more and more disconnected. And without an intentional trigger to step back into the game, many continue just warming the bench. A third, some people watch because they lack courage. Some people know their gifts, they understand their calling, they have a clear sense of where they should serve, but they don't. They they might linger in the background because they're afraid of stepping forward, afraid of putting themselves out there. 
Now face it, when you register, sign up, or enlist, you face the prospect of being rejected. And then when you do serve, you open yourself to feedback from others, just like the five F questions that I talked about in the end of talk number 19, where people evaluate the fruitfulness and effectiveness of what you did. Fourth, some people watch because they accept that as their position. They choose it. They might decide that the best days of their service are behind them. They might like motivation to move back towards ministry after taking a necessary season off, or, or they might have drifted and feel unsure how to step back away from the sideline, back into the game, but they've just accepted that this is now what I do. And then finally, fifth, I think some people watch because, I mean, let's just admit it, not popular to say, but they just lack commitment. They've not bought in. Now, it's easy to look at them and blame them. It's easy to get frustrated with the watchers uh, because many of them, truthfully, don't just watch. They complain and they consume. They, They give you feedback even though they might not be participating. But... Paul exhorts us to look at the watchers through spiritual eyes. He tells us that it's okay to address them as long as we do so, as is the case with all the gifts, from a position of love and patience. He describes the watchers at the church at Thessalonica, and he writes this in 1 Thessalonians 5.14, We urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive, encourage the disheartened, help the weak, but be patient with everyone. Now, like I referenced, I think it was in talk number seven, the context for everything is love. If we can't minister in such a way that people feel loved, even when we're correcting them, even when we're encouraging them to step forward and do something that they should be doing, but they're not, if we can't do that in love, we've got to step back and make sure that we have all of the information available and that we're truly serving them from the spirit rather than from our flesh or frustration. That means we need to understand why they're watching. Has life happened in such a way that they need to be served during this season rather than serving? Uh, When my family unknowingly found ourselves in crisis mode, our non-church friends supported us in droves. The church was silent. Uh, Have they declined or drifted away? I mean, perhaps there's hurt or a misunderstanding somewhere, and there's a bridge that needs to be rebuilt that you can rebuild. Or, or, Or are they afraid of serving? Do they just need someone to believe in them? Or has the watcher just chosen and accepted the watch position as their plight? That is, do they need someone to call forth the greatness that's in them? Or do they lack commitment? You see, each situation is different. Let's talk about that final group, the wanderers, 50% of the people that you don't see. About 30 years ago, I overheard a stat from Billy Graham. He was preaching a televised crusade. He estimated that about half of the people who claim to attend church, any given church, were actually lost. That's the word he used. That is, they, they didn't live in a redemptive relationship with their Heavenly Father. Now, do you remember that statement, that strange one that that pastor made that I referenced earlier uh, about the church members? He said, we we have a lot, but the FBI couldn't find half of them. Well, that's one way to look at it, but then there's there's another. There's a couple for whom I officiated a wedding back in 2004. When I asked them where they attended church, just for making small talk, the bride said, we're creasters. Creaster? What's a creaster, I asked? The groom laughed and replied, 
Christmas and Easter. We attend on Christmas and Easter, Creaster. Well, these Creasters, or whatever you call them, they comprise about 50% of the people who are connected to any given church. They call that their church home, meaning that's where they'll go if they need to get married or buried at any time between Christmas or Easter, but they're not really involved other than those two times. In fact, you might look at their life patterns and say they're clearly not connected to a church at all. Well, it's easy to get frustrated with that group too, but let me make an observation. Aside from investing in a handful of workers, leaders, as in the 12 and a few more other than that, this Creaster group is the group with whom Jesus invested the majority of his time. In fact, um, in, in the next talk, I'm going to show you, I'm looking forward to it, I'm going to show you what happened when a few hardcore workers confronted him one day about his rationale for doing so. But, but for now, I want you to think about it like this. Our three groups, the workers generally are growing Christians. The watchers, kind of nominal, maybe new Christians. The wanderers may not even be claimed Christianity at all. But here's the kicker. You should see all three groups in every church. Not only do we want to create such an environment of love and acceptance that these people are drawn to the church, we want to walk in relationship with them so that we have the proximity required to call forth the greatness that's inside them. You see, if you don't see all three groups in your congregation, you can make an easy diagnosis as to what's occurring. If you don't have workers, you're not discipling people. You might be imparting information to them, but biblical Christianity is more about the application of information and translating what we know in our heads, what connects with our hearts, and then what we do with our hands. Part of discipleship includes empowering people to find their gift and then to actually use it. In fact, that might be the biggest part of discipleship. Second, if you don't have wanderers, you're not, you're not doing evangelism. You, you might believe in the idea of evangelism, and you might have people who share their faith in the marketplace or at other scheduled times. True evangelism, though, it connects people to Jesus and to his body even before they make a profession of faith. There should be the opportunity for people to just kind of wander in, just kick the tires, and just check the place out. If you don't have watchers, you don't have a pipeline in place where people are moving from one aspect of their faith journey to another where people are moving from wandering to working, where they're coming in close to observe, they're coming in close to get a better look. That said, what do I want you to take away from this talk? Quite simply this, embrace each of these people and love them where they are. But at the same time, love them enough to lead them just a little bit farther, to come in just a little bit closer and to experience a little bit more life. You see, imagine what would happen if in each church just a few more watchers became workers. And, and I'm not talking about workers inside the church. I'm talking about workers who are living fully functioning in their gifts, in the expression of the Holy Spirit moving through them, wherever in the world that takes them. And then imagine what would happen if a few wanderers, people who are just out on the fringe just wondering if there was more there if they were invited just to come in close and take an honest look to where they could watch ask the tough questions even the questions that might offend us and just observe close enough to be loved 
And then what would happen if people who weren't connected at all suddenly began wondering in and walking in relationship, feeling safe to explore, asking those tough questions of life? It sounds messy, doesn't it? I, th- I think it does. And I think it is, but it's this great, incredible opportunity that we're invited into. In the next talk, here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna invite you to listen to one of the most famous stories in the Bible of all, but then we're gonna observe it in a different way. And we're gonna pull back the layer and we're gonna talk about one of the most incredible, I I think, lens whereby we can see relationships and see how we've been invited into the story of God. My prayer for you at this point is that the Lord would bless you that he would keep you, that he'd be gracious and shine his face of favor upon you. And that wherever you are on that spectrum, whether it's wandering, watching, working, that you would move in just a little bit closer. Not all the way, just incrementally closer. And my prayer is that as you do that, that you would pray and see and pull someone else along that way with you. Meeting them, loving them, expressing patience, and spirit and wisdom and grace as you do. Grace, peace, shalom.